I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with a relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. I'll be talking about the return of Big Little Lies later in the program, but first, my colleagues Jen Yamato and Lorraine Ali discuss the slate of streaming and cable programming centered on rebellion, resistance, and representation. Is the revolution being televised after all? Let's listen in. Today, you got your girl, Jen Yamato, film reporter, here with Lorraine Ali, television critic. And we're going to guest host this week's program. So we've come here to the studio to discuss some really, I think, vibrant and I would say urgent programs that have been on our minds lately and that also share sort of this common resonance as different as they are. We're going to take you through some of the streaming series that are coming back and some new offerings also that have some things in common, starting with The Handmaid's Tale. Dun, dun, dun. Heresy. That's what you get punished for. Not for being part of the resistance. Because officially, there is no resistance. Not for helping people escape. Because officially, there's no such thing as escape. The Handmaid's Tale came out this week, and it just couldn't be more timely. And in case you have not heard of it, which I highly (laughs) doubt... It is the dystopian nightmare of a future America where women are essentially enslaved and in servitude and forced to be breeders, essentially. And uh, there's all sorts of other horrible things happening that reflect many of the things that people are kind of terrified of today. When the show first premiered, adapted from Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel... Everyone was like, oh, this is like so real. I feel it in my bones, as wildly dystopian as it is. And over the course of now three seasons, that sense of familiar anxiety has only kind of ratcheted up. It's amazing how the show has felt like it has had such a vision into the very near future. I mean, they had... Episodes about children being separated from their parents literally like the same week it broke in the news here and here in the real world. And this season, what I've seen so far definitely reflects what we're seeing just in terms of women's rights being taken away, reproductive rights. In the real world. Yes. To reiterate. Yes, Yes. in the real world. And so I think people have said, Handmaid's Tale is so terrifying. It can be so grim. It can be so hard to watch. But I think it's a really good thing to let these anxieties about how extreme things could get play out in this fictional world in order to, A, let us grapple with those feelings, but B, wake us the hell up. I mean, right? So, and season three, I would call it the resistance. So, Lorraine, you have seen the first few episodes of season three so far, which are out this week. And there's so much anticipation because the season two finale was somewhat of a giant cliffhanger. Yes. 
We had June, who's played by Elizabeth Moss, potentially on the verge of escaping and essentially making her way into the safety of Canada. But she turns around at the last minute, hands her baby over to Emily, another handmaid who's escaping. Take care of the baby. Get her out of here. I'm going back to get my daughter. So she's essentially going back in to this horrible society while giving her daughter the chance to live somewhere else where you are not enslaved, essentially. And it picks up almost exactly in the same spot where it left off. She is standing under that bridge, but there's a different tone. Now, that terror you felt at the end of season two, beginning of season three, you look under that hood at her face and she's pissed. She's just like, the revolution's begun, bitches. It's happening now. (laughs) So Elizabeth Moss also stars in this movie that came out earlier this year, this independent film called Her Smell, which she is amazing and and so fierce. That movie alone, I think, gave me this sense of this, her, her capacity for ferocity and to be just like free, freely unvarnished. She plays this sort of, former Riot girl, still kind of famous, but on the decline rock star who just sort of rampages through the lives of everybody around her. And she's kind of amazing in it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely there. She's got that quiet fury, right? I mean, you read it on her face and you see it, but there's actual scenes in there with other women as well. I don't want to give too much away. They're setting the quote unquote marital bed on fire. One thing I really liked about season two is that there was this gradual activation almost. Not just characters like June and not just characters like Emily, played by Alexis Bledel, who I didn't think would have another perfect role after Gilmore Girls. Who knew? (laughs) I mean. (laughs) But you're seeing the seeds have been planted, the resistance extending throughout the upper echelons of female society as well. Yeah, and it's a really interesting theme because when you're talking about this kind of gender politics that are coming up in series, it's now also going across like socioeconomic lines. When you look at all the stuff that's coming out this week, the series that are returning this Mm -hmm. week, for instance, Handmaid's Tale, but also you have Claws, which is TNT, and it's about these women who work in a nail salon, right? Totally working class women in Florida But they are gangsters at this point. They have literally gamed the system that men have used to keep them down. And then you also have Big Little Lies returning. And that, on the flip side, is about these pretty much generally overprivileged women in Northern California. Mm -hmm. But they're also in this position where they're pushing back against a patriarchy in their own world. But it's interesting because all of these, Handmaid's Tale, Claws, Big Little Lies, They depend on these women sticking together, even when they want to kill each other. They somehow stick together and they find ways and they realize like, okay, this is not going to happen unless we are sticking together. And you're talking about under extreme circumstances in all these shows. And I think it's a really interesting thread all the way across that's running through shows that are fiction, that are fantastical, that are whatever you want to say. And I think what's also interesting is the promotional campaigns that you see for all of these shows know that that is what the audience is connecting to and they play it up. You know, you see like Handmaid's Tale billboards around town and the iconography that they know that people are connecting to has an element of like, 
yes, people want to see some sort of cathartic action being taken by these characters. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And even with Claws, when you're looking at some of the trailers for it, you see those nails. You see those women <laughs> with these like blinged out nails. Which I love. They're like, fantastic. Well, let's hold on just a minute and play a little of the trailer from Claws. People have underestimated us our whole lives. We're more than manicures. We're full gangster. With full sads. That's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. This right here, this is all we need is our crew. It's our turn to live the dream. We they are em- they embrace the natural beauty and badassery of nail extensions, which I have had often in my life. And a lot of, you know, like unless you've had long claws, you don't understand that life is like actually not so hard to navigate with those things. And come on, it's like a power extension. It is. Come on, it's just like they they're these- sharp. They are shopping these scenes in Claws. It's so great. Like almost every scene opens up with somebody doing something with their hands. So you're seeing like the nail tapping on the table as she's deciding, am I going to get my stake in this casino or whatever it is? But (laughs) without blowing too much, there is a fabulous musical number in there, too, that is to an In Vogue song. What? (laughs) Free your mind. It's awesome. Oh, my God. Shout out to In Vogue. Claws is coming back. Yes. Another program that you might not think has any commonality with the ones that we've mentioned, but there's this newly debuted to Netflix miniseries by Ava DuVernay called When They See Us. It's the story of the Central Park Five told in four parts. And Nisi Nash, who stars on Claws, yes. also has a role on When They See Us. So that was my segue. But really... It was, we, a, it was a very graceful segue. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, but when we were talking about Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, When They See Us is on Netflix. These are some really powerful uh, female-led stories in front of the camera and also behind the camera. The story of Ava DuVernay tracking her career and what she has chosen to do with her platform is a very powerful example. And she joined forces with Oprah Winfrey, who is an exec producer on When They See Us, to tell the story of these five Black and Latino teenagers who were wrongfully convicted of a terrible, terrible crime rape of a woman in New York City. The response that when they see us, got on social media the day that it hit Netflix. Mm -hmm. And it's been so huge and so moving and so, so extremely meaningful to see these stories represented on screen in such a wide-reaching way after so many years of going untold. And when they see us has already had real-life consequences. A big example is how the former lead prosecutor of the sex crimes unit in New York, Linda Fairstein, who is played by Felicity Huffman herself, who has become at the center of another very high-profile criminal case. Uh, Linda Fairstein, the real Linda Fairstein, because of all the attention brought on the case and the scrutiny of her role in this case has been forced by um, huge, huge social media pressure, public pressure to resign from several nonprofit boards she served on, including her alma mater, all because there was an online petition. People who saw 
when they see us and got the viral hashtag cancel Linda Fairstein going. So it's really brought a lot of scrutiny onto this case and the people who were central figures in it. The female jogger was severely beaten and raped. Every black male who was in the park last night is a suspect. I need all of them. What's going on with my son? Your son was involved in rape in Central Park. What? No, no, it's, no, wait, no, it's wait a second, wait a second. They saw you rape the lady. I didn't see a lady or hit anyone. I didn't see any lady. Kevin. I didn't see any lady. I want to see my son right now, right now. So to go back to the even larger picture, one thing that I'm really appreciating right now in this moment, especially as we got together to talk about what we're watching essentially right now, is the power of the stories that are being put on screen. Um, A lot of them are on these streaming platforms right now, which is interesting. And like, where's the when they see us on network television? Why is Handmaid's Tale on Hulu and not network television? That is the beauty of all this fragmentation, right? It opens up so much more space. And what you would have considered a risky move on network old broadcast TV. Or what an exec might have considered risky. And it still is the old white boy thing. But those the fragmentation has just left these cracks and left it so there is room for these things to happen and spring up. And I think what's so interesting about the Central Park Five story um, is that back in the day when that happened, when those guys were being essentially tried in the media, in the public court, Donald Trump at the time had talked about death penalty locked away for life or whatever he had said before these guys ever even like made it into the courtroom. And, it's, and it was just an example of how the media drove this narrative, right? Okay, and this isn't a time when We didn't have voices like Ava's out there. So the narrative was controlled very much in one way. Now when you see her doing their story or when you see The Handmaid's Tale or when you see these female-centric shows or starring or made by women, you're getting this totally different perspective that you would not have gotten. It's almost like an answer to that time. And it's so critical now because, as we know, what's going on politically, what's happening with the race issues being used to leverage political careers and also the abortion issues. It is so critical to have these voices out there. And I think that gets to your point of that's why they're marketing this stuff. Like, look, here's June under the hood and she's pissed. I mean, the revolution's begun. Okay, I'm in. I'm in. Hand me the red cloak. I'm in. (laughs) As soon as Handmaid's premiered as a series and quickly amassed an audience, you started seeing Handmaid cosplay at like Comic-Con. And now that cosplay shows up at like political events. Protests. Yeah. Yes. Women are wearing that to protest. A couple years ago, or even maybe even last year, people were talking about, yeah, it's great that Hollywood's looking at diversity or it's good for it to be diverse. But now it's not just good. It's like critical. It's critical. To move these stories forward. And uh, this is a taking a total left turn, but <laughs> kind of yet another <laughs> sort of randomly seeming segue to another piece of hashtag content that I've been watching along with a lot of people lately is this new Netflix rom-com, which you might not think fits into this discussion, but it's called Always Be My Maybe. 
which is a riff off of that great Mariah Carey classic. I'll be my baby. I'm so happy you're singing. Oh my goodness. Mariah Carey shout outs. Can we play a little of the trailer first? Hey. Hi, Marcus. Yeah. Hi, Sasha. Hi. Hello. Hi. Long time. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very long time. What's up? Sasha Trash. Mr. Kim. You're like our own Asian Oprah. Uh-huh. How much money do you have now? <laughs> Be serious. Oh. I love that you're bringing Always Be My Maybe into this conversation. I have not seen it, so I'm really interested in how a rom-com fits into these sort of themes of what we're talking about today, because I wouldn't think it did. And granted, it might be because I had to immerse my headspace in this for the last, like, week or so, writing several stories about this movie, Um, but gladly so. It is a romantic comedy about two childhood best friends who grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 90s, Um, and in their teenage years— had a giant fight, went their separate ways. And then as adults, she is now a celebrity chef opening restaurants in LA and all over the place. He is what I would say is a very recognizable slacker musician still living at home, smoking pot with his dad (laughs) happily. And they reconnect and the old sparks fly. And it's very When Harry Met Sally. It's got an incredible, a truly all-time incredible cameo by Keanu Reeves. And that's the story. Okay, so why is this something that you think like sort of pushes at those old ideas of what a rom-com should be or what women in relationships should be or whatever it is? So what makes this in many people's minds and distinct is that this is a rom-com starring two Asian-American stars, which you never see. Speaking as a Bay Area Asian who grew up in the 90s doing a lot of the same embarrassing stuff as teenagers, as these characters, and (laughs) frankly, eating a lot of the same comfort foods, I felt very seen by this rom-com in a way that I've never felt in mainstream romantic movies. You have two Asian-American leads played by Ali Wong, the hilarious stand-up comic, And Randall Park, who is best known for being one of the leads of Fresh Off the Boat, huge hit TV show. And they not only co-starred in it, they produced it and they co-wrote it with an old friend of theirs, Michael Golamko, who is also an Asian-American writer. Actually, it was just announced he's going to write Akira with Taika Waititi for Warner Brothers. Wow. So it's not just visibility on screen, which is so, so groundbreaking, frankly, even a year after Crazy Rich Asians. We just need more stories. Every community needs more stories. Every underrepresented group needs more stories. So this feels like a great step forward along that trajectory. And the two of them, Ali Wong and Randall Park, hired Ninochka Khan, who is Iranian-American and grew up in Hawaii, is the showrunner who created fresh off the boat. (laughs) And so you have female power behind the scenes, female power and Asian American visibility on screen in just this beautiful, normalized way. And it's such a unicorn to experience this kind of story that the, the, the response has been like really big to it. 
You know, the whole unicorn thing, that's kind of how I felt when Rami dropped. Rami! On, on yes, Hulu! on Hulu. I never thought I'd see the day when I would see an Arab Muslim sitcom where they're making jokes about, like, condoms and... But, <laughs> but also, like, totally a normalized experience yes. of being Muslim-American. The thing, that, which is, I think, universal among any sort of underrepresented group in America knows this experience of having these dual identities. It's not that you're split identity or one or the other. You're just all of these things. Right. For instance, let's say Always Be My Maybe was made 10 years ago, okay? And by the usual suspects, it wouldn't have been made, but let's just say it was, (laughs) okay? She would have been sort of like the submissive love interest for some dashing white dude. Come on, you know that's what it would have been. Or it would have just starred two white actors. You're right. Or maybe she would have been the distraction or something. Mm -hmm. The few clips that I've seen from it, she's also not just freaking hysterical, but she's like fierce. And she's she plays super a successful fierce. woman with a career who, and that's important to her, which is kind of amazing. Right. And Ali Wong, this is the genius of Ali Wong. She wrote herself not one, not two, but three hunky men to make out with. <laughs> the, the third is played by Daniel Day Kim. See what happens when we gain creative control. <laughs> but I'm so glad you brought up Rami because Rami's a huge hit for Hulu. You know, when I saw it on paper and knew it was coming, I was nervous. I was really nervous because I've seen a few things here and there didn't quite work. But when I saw that and realized, and I think it's what you're speaking to, how multi-layered it was and how many of those people I knew... It's like, oh, my God, I've had that uncle. Oh, my God. Yeah, the totally my dad. You know, you knew those people, but also it bridged the culture between being second generation, growing up wherever in the valley like I did. <laughs> you're going to mosque one day. You're going to Sunday school the next and then you're going to go see Van Halen or whatever it is. <laughs> and why can't all those things exist together? Well, they can now on TV, just like they do in real life. Yeah. And it sounds simple, but my God, it's like. Revolutionary. Exactly. It is. The resistance has begun. You're watching Always Be My Maybe. I grew up in the Bay Area in the 90s. And there's this scene where they're playing teenage versions of themselves. And it's so awkward. She has braces and they hook up in the backseat of this Toyota Corolla, <laughs> a car my family owned. Oh my God. And they're listening to 106.1 KML on the radio. And D'Angelo comes on. And it's just like oh, kind boo-boo. of. This amazingly specific, authentic experience, on top of which she, like, as a kid, she's like a latchkey kid. She makes herself dinner, and it, the camera just casually shows that she's making spam and rice with furikake on top. It's just, like, part of the fabric. You know, it's so interesting because the idea of the more specific you are, like the more wide reaching it can be. Yeah. The idea of her making that or yeah. the idea of it's the 90s, D'Angelo is playing, that's what you made out to in the 90s. I mean, these are specifics. <laughs> and you think, well, maybe that limits the audience. But no, as a matter of fact, it's those things that make it authentic. It's those things that ring true, that are so funny, that are so moving, that do sort of jar something in you. Do you think that I was beat by maybe as opened up more things? Like, in other words, I know that's hard to say right now. The downside to streaming content is that we don't have any access to metrics. So our best judge is, I think, still social media responses. And last weekend when the film hit Netflix, it just was like, 
off the chart. It was being talked about, not just by Asians, by the way, not just by East Asians either. And I think that's really important to be able to transcend just one core demographic and have multiple core demographics. So I feel like it seems promising. I certainly hope that more companies invest in stores like this or just like take more chances, I guess, what would formerly have been considered a chance. I think they're influencing what's going to happen above and beyond that. And I think Netflix with putting out films like this and these films being successful, I definitely think that Hollywood's slower to respond. But I do think these streaming platforms are pushing all the other dinosaurs into a direction that they've been reticent to go toward. But now that they see green, I think they're going to move that way. I can't say this enough. I just, you think of the way that you grew up watching TV or films and what you saw, just in terms of women being represented, whatever it was, it was an outside experience. It it wasn't really for you. You were just kind of like a bystander. Now you're in it. Now it like pulls you in such a personal way, at least in my experience. And I think without getting too personal about this, but I think for many years I covered music and I covered music more than visual mediums because music you could make much more personal. It didn't tell you what to see. You could feel it. Visually in film and TV, I just didn't have those connections. And I feel like that's changing. now. When I think about what's about to happen as these all these various shows that we've talked about premiere their new seasons, I think it'll be really interesting to see what audiences talk about, what they take from these upcoming seasons and these characters. And so the more that we see more programs and TV and film or Netflix or Hulu films or whatever platform they're on that are reflecting this real hunger in viewers to see our anxieties, our confusion reflected in stories, I think we're going to see audiences really glom onto and back those programs more and more to bring this full circle back to Handmaid's Tale. Oh, yes. Because seeing yourself in a story is great, unless that story is dystopian nightmare, in which case it's good to feel some acknowledgement that you're not crazy, right? That your anxieties, real-world anxieties are not crazy. To see a well-written show play out plausible fears to their worst end It does um, make you feel like, okay, it's not just a fear that's in my own head. It's not just a fear that's among my friends and I because we politically believe the same thing. It's something that is deep enough that the show was made about it and the show is a huge hit. It's won awards and people are talking about it. So therefore, it's a shared fear of what's going to happen. And yeah, it's not always about seeing yourself in a positive way out there. When you see your fears played out, that's validating as well. And June not only coincides with the return of The Handmaid's Tale, but it is Pride Month. So happy Pride to everybody. Uh, And one of the best ways I can think of celebrating Pride is by watching one of my favorite shows in recent memory, which is Pose on FX, which comes back on June 11th. So we're going to wrap up this part of the conversation. We're going to take a little brief break, and then we'll be back with Mark Olson, talking about the return of Big Little Lies. Hi, everyone. It's me, Lucas Peterson, L.A. Times food columnist. And I think you'll be pleased to learn that the L.A. Times food section has relaunched both online and in print. 
We have excellent recipes, outstanding reviews, unbelievable local food news, all for you at the very affordable price of 99 cents for the first four weeks for online access and $1.99 per week after that. Find our content online every day and in print on Thursdays. Go to latimes.com slash hungryla to subscribe. Big Little Lies was envisioned as a limited series, but after a huge fan response, executive producers Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon, who play Celeste and Madeline, respectively, pushed for more. Mark Olson talked with our colleague Yvonne Villarreal, our TV reporter here at the LA Times, who interviewed the Monterey Five. Yvonne, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You just wrote a story on the second season of the show. You talked to all five of the ladies of the Monterey Five. And maybe a good place to start is just tell me, so a lot of people felt that the first season was very complete in its storytelling. It was based on a Leanne Moriarty book. Tell me about what sort of the creators of the show have to say about Simply a Decision to come back. Was it something they grappled with at all? The response from the fans, which is, we have these five amazing women. We want to see the story keep going. There was a lot of discussion about, is this the right thing to do? Does it make narrative sense to keep going? Because I think a lot of people, you know, yes, there's the murder and things wrapped up at the end of the book. But there's also like, what happens next after something like that? Nicole actually flew out to Australia a few times to get Leanne to follow up where these characters end up. I mean, obviously, things really don't end there. So Leanne was persuaded to write this, like, 170-page novella where she sort of laid out where she thinks the characters end up. And Leanne introduced a character, Mary Louise, who is the mother to Perry, the abusive husband of Celeste, played by Nicole Kidman. If only, for example, let's say George R.R. R. Martin uh-huh. had gone back and like <laughs> written a little roadmap for people. On the one hand, it's so smart. It kind of sounds unusual, but it seems like a great way to go about this. Well, and it's the world that she created. And I think it was sort of giving her that sort of respect of these are your characters and you birth them. Why do you think the first season was as popular as it was and sort of created this demand for a second season. It came out right as sort of the kind of the Me Too era was just getting going. It seemed like it captured something about even for these upper middle class, upper class women, a sense of rage, a sense of female isolation, and then this strange sense of like, we're in this together, even when we're sort of not. And do you think that the show capture the feeling that a lot of women were having at the moment that it came out? What the Me Too movement sort of highlighted is a lot of women deal with their stuff in isolation. And these women who have this sort of picture-perfect lifestyle and they seem to have everything together, when you really get down to it, they're dealing with stuff that a lot of us are dealing with. They're dealing with Being a mom, the challenges of that, they're dealing with domestic violence, they're dealing with sexual assault, and you're seeing that they too have messy lives. And so often, I'm sure you think I'm like just the most cheerful colleague that you've ever had, but you don't know like what I go home and struggle with, what keeps me up at night. And I think seeing that curtain pulled back was something that spoke to viewers and made them want to come back for more. And I think 
seeing the way that they, especially in this season, they have this unifying thing that brings them together. And it is that sisterhood of we've all experienced something together and that in a way unites us. And what does that mean when we're all sort of working together? But also, I'm assuming that the show kind of plays with the idea that these women are bound together by this very specific incident. And I would think that there must be some amount of who has the upper hand. Can they all really trust each other? Is that something that they explore that as much as these women are now very much bound together and united, it still is probably a kind of a tenuous connection? I've only seen the first three episodes, so be very jealous. But things pick up and it seems like, yeah, these women are sort of friendlier than we've seen in the past. And Renata, played by the amazing Laura Dern, is now part of the group. But we see a little bit that things aren't totally peachy with all of them because, you know, one of them, Bonnie, who's played by Zoe Kravitz, is the one that caused the death of Perry. And she's sort of isolating herself. So we see in that way that maybe it's not all kumbaya, but they did hint that there will be some things along the way that make you question what these relationships really are. Also, in exploring the lives of privilege that these women enjoy, there is, in fact, a funny bit of serendipity that there's a college admissions storyline. Um. Reese's character, Madeline, her her oldest daughter is of age where she's now having to think about college and she's not really keen on the idea. And Madeline is like, what do you mean? You have to go to college, like pressuring her like this is what you have to do. There's a moment where her daughter says, I want to work with the homeless people. And Madeline's like, I don't care about the homeless people. It does sort of highlight the class divisions there. And now the big addition this season in that role of the mother, Meryl Streep. So now you're interviewing Reese Witherspoon, Laura Dern, Nicole Kidman, Shailene. I didn't get Meryl. But these are women who are forces to be reckoned with Mm -hmm. in their own right. Reese and Nicole in particular are producers on this show and they're real motivating factors behind its very existence. What did you feel like their impressions of Meryl were? In a way, it's a real coup. There's kind of no one you could get that could seem of sterner, stronger, scarier stuff over Reese and Nicole and Laura than getting yourself a Meryl. For sure. What seemed to be a common sentiment was that obviously they saw her bring her skill set and passion to the work. Like there's no denying that, but getting to hang out with her off screen and seeing her sort of silly side and stuff like that. That's what they talked a lot about. She brings her a game, but she's also fun to be around. I was so struck by a quote that you have in your story from Shailene Woodley, where Shailene was super impressed by Meryl's work ethic and the fact that, like, she's Meryl for a reason. Mm-hmm. And there's a particular scene that comes near the end of episode one that, I mean, it's Meryl. It's a force to see on the screen. And now also the practicalities of the show, the first season, all the episodes were directed by Jean-Marc Vallée. This new season, all the episodes are directed by Andrea Arnold, who 
is just a fantastic filmmaker in her own right. She'd made the movie American Honey. She's also directed on Transparent. She directed on I Love Dick. Did she have an impact on the show? Like, do you feel like this is now like Andrea Arnold's Big Little Lies? I don't know, because, you know, Jean-Marc really set the tone of what the show is. And I think she wasn't trying to tinker with that too much. It still felt like a seamless transition from director to director. So I don't think it'll be too jarring, her contributions. And so I think that'll do it for our conversation here about the second season of Big Little Lies, premiering on HBO on Sunday, June 9th. Yvonne, thank you so much for taking some time from all your celebrity phone calls to talk to me. (laughs) Thank you. Pleasure being here. And be sure to tell people where they can find your work online. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Villarilli. And I'm on Twitter at IndieFocus. And so for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. That's it for this week's show. Happy Gemini season. Happy Pride. You can find Lorraine on Twitter at at Lorraine Ollie. You can find me on Twitter at at Genumato. This episode is produced by Katie Cooper and edited by Mike Heflin. 